Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also, as you know by now, go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com, or send along an email to me, if you would, at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Alternatively, you can feel free to send a comment through our contact page on the website. It is so encouraging week after week to hear from you. Well... Today, uh, you know, God has blessed this podcast. If my math is correct, this is number 90. And I, I, I want to ask you not to underestimate your importance to this effort. This podcast has grown organically, uh, astoundingly organically, by you sharing it with friends and talking about it among friends. There isn't a week that goes by that I don't hear from someone who surprises me by either talking about a specific episode or thanking me or even saying, your voice sounds familiar. Are you the guy with the podcast? So please do share it with uh, friends. We don't advertise and uh, we don't really promote other than just a few free social media posts that I throw out there every now and then. And you can tell they're free and you can tell I do them because they're not, you know, great graphically, but and we're, we're looking to improve our effort in that regard uh, coming up very soon. I'll tell you more about that soon. But today, I want to talk about a topic that, frankly, I have struggled with my entire life. It's, it's even addressed in the intro to this podcast, the, the big radio voice who introduces me from Josh Brown's place who says uh, something like, uh, you know, it's the study of who who is God, or this podcast is about who is God, who is man, and how we relate to each other. Well, that's a, you know, as you know, a very complex issue, and I, I hope I can share some thoughts with you today that'll be helpful to that end. They really originate throughout all of Scripture, and and the, the, the core concept is something like this. God does not require external input in his character. God is complete in and of himself. He is entirely sufficient on his own. And conversely, mankind, we, men and women on this earth, are not. In fact, when we gravitate toward our self-sufficiency, we, we move into sin, and that shows up a couple of different ways. That shows up in immorality, and sometimes it shows up in self-sufficiency or moralism. That is, I can be good enough. So the Apostle Paul talks about this, this challenge a lot, and we're not going to go back and, and, and plow through every thought Paul ever had on this topic, but I think it's important to to understand a couple of things. I I was taught, um, you know, and I say that loosely, 
what I remember from church as a kid is is really a a, a little bit of a superficial gospel and superficial truth. And I, I'm astounded at how many people share my experience. It probably comes from growing up in the in the late seventies and early eighties and I, I think it's that period in American church history where evangelicalism and some some key groups kind of set the stage. But what's what's interesting about this this topic about how God relates to us is with with God even being self sufficient, He He loves us, extends grace and mercy to us, and and Paul even references often actually in his writing Old Testament passages of of Scripture about Israel, and and that and that just gets very confusing. And you've probably heard all this talk about dispensationalism and and reformed theology and calvinism and and the covenant theology and all of all of this well there there are some views that if if we take so so here's here's another thought for you um we as much as we talk about exegesis and any i say it on this podcast from time to time we don't want to do eisegesis we want to practice exegesis that is Reading out of is all that means. Reading out of the text, exegesis, exegeting, exegetical analysis. We want to read out of the text what it says, not eisegesis. That is reading into it our presuppositions. Having said that, as much as we like to think we approach Scripture from a purely exegetical standpoint, don't we each bring presuppositions to our understanding? We do. We clearly do. I remember various theologians over the years just kind of rocking my presuppositions with their hermeneutic, their their way of teaching, their understanding of Scripture. So my goal today is not to jolt or shock, but I want to look at the both the Old and New Testament to see if we can make sense of the way God relates to us. And I very strangely, perhaps, want to do it in the context of the Jewish people or Israel. And, and I want to be clear at the outset that I understand very clearly, I think Scripture teaches it very clearly, that God is entirely sovereign over salvation and everything else for that matter. God didn't just sprinkle the earth with people and say, wow, I wonder what they'll do next. God isn't sitting on his throne, and I say that respectfully, watching us to see what we do next so he can react. He, his knowledge is infinite. He, 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 these are difficult concepts, I realize, but through eternity past even, he knew everything that would happen. He sees into eternity future. And I, I can just obviously barely grasp those concepts. So I believe that the cross, I believe scripture teaches the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, his incarnation, his sinless life, his death on that cruel Roman cross, his burial in, 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 in the tomb, his resurrection, his, his ascension, his intercession for us, all of that 
was planned by God as the center of human history in eternity past. And I believe scripture screams that, confirms that for us. But there's there's a text even in 2 Timothy that I like to talk about that says, uh, it's in the middle of a sentence, it says, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so to have to have grace, we have to have sin. So God contemplated our sin in eternity past, before the ages began. That's a reference to eternity past. That's my way of synthesizing that thought. And And so... God anticipated sin. There has to be sin to have grace. And God actually receives glory from all of this. I, I, I'm not sure how to say that accurately, but he does. So I'm, I'm going to push on some of our, our presuppositions here. And, and I, I'll tell you a, a complicated factor in this analysis is God's foreknowledge understanding it we we talk about if you if you just listen to conversations we use the words before and after or their synonyms often we reference the timeline often are you going to do this tomorrow are you going to do that tomorrow what about yesterday what did you have for lunch where are we going to dinner there, there are all kinds of before and after references they're not all about food like i just made them there there are sometimes where are you going to go to college? I watch young people, my students who are brilliant, struggle with these decisions and they look down the timeline. What are you going to do for a living? How much money are you going to make? How much money did you make? Where, where did you see that particular event? Did you go to blank, referencing going somewhere at some period of time in the past? We do it all the time. We reference this timeline. I cannot imagine... God's timelessness. I can't fathom it. The closest I can come to that I've mentioned here before, that is when we see a star, we're looking light years into the past. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I say it and I, I kind of can grasp a, just a piece of it. But I think the closest star is 4.4 light years away, which means the light that we see started 4.4 years ago on its journey to earth, to visibility on earth. And so we're looking, when we see that star, 4.4 years into the past. Put the star out, turn it out, make it crash into something, and go away, and the light stays on on earth for 4.3 something years. Turn out the sun, and we have the light for 11 years. So I... I can't think about God's timelessness. Therefore, this concept of foreknowledge, his foreknowledge is not just, I wonder what those humans are going to do. He he has some other traits, doesn't he? Omniscience, knowing everything, omnipotence, uh, that, that is all pow- being all powerful. And so I realize all of that, but it is God's foreknowledge that is not talked about very much in scripture there there's some magnificent passages about god's character and and his his foreknowledge is mentioned and it's implied a lot but but it's not really explained very thoroughly in scripture so one of the things that we can rest in as we look at this god being complete on his own is that 
he's righteous, that is morally correct, morally right. We sometimes call it his holiness, which is actually his being set apart. And he's not arbitrary. God is not arbitrary. It's a purpose for everything. But we can't trust our finite understanding. We just talked about that with respect to time. God's timing and our understanding, even even just if we distill it into that issue, the timeline itself, are just confounding to us. Confounding to us. So one of the places that is very helpful when we when we start talking about mysteries, and I know you know how much I love the book of Romans. But one of the places where I think we can see God's character really clearly is Romans chapter 9. And I I know I did a survey on this, kind of a a quick chapter-by-chapter study uh, about six months ago, if memory serves. And and I, I know we talked about all of this, but there's a beauty in this in this chapter if we understand what Paul is addressing. So Paul has already addressed all of justification by faith. And then I, I want to just I, I want to talk about the, the the difficult sections here where I want to talk about concepts like God hardening people, hardening their heart. I want to talk about Jacob and Esau, where he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And I want to talk about the potter and the clay. What right does the thing made or the clay have to say to the potter? Why did you make me like this? And I probably just misquoted. I don't have those in front of me at the moment. So I probably misquoted those sections. But but I, I, I want to do something. My, my journey with this truth, with, with really who God is, you know, how in terms of how he deals with humans. And, I, and I, I've already mentioned his completeness and, and some of his character traits, the omnis. And, and I, I left out some omnis, but, but you, you know, we've talked about that before. We could do this podcast, frankly, could be about God's character every week. And we'd never run out of material because he's infinite. Our understanding is limited. But rather than addressing that today i want to address on an aspect of his character that 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 really reveals how he relates to us in that intro i I cringe when i hear how we relate to each other that almost implies that god is is reacting to us but we do have volition and 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 so god god somehow you know we we make choices we make decisions and god is not arbitrary But let's just look at this to see if we can decide who Paul is talking to in these difficult sections. If you look at Romans 9, uh, verses 1 and following, I'm just going to read a few of them, and then I'm going to leapfrog to the end of this section before we address these challenging issues. Paul says in, in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And I I think immediately, wow, is that defensive? He's worked up over something. And then he says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What an emotional appeal. And then he uses that word we've seen before, for or because I could wish, he didn't say I do wish, I could wish that I myself were accursed 
and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then we scratch our heads and say, wow, who's he talking about? And oh, if you're a covenant theology person, you think one thing. If you're a dispensationalist, you think another. And it can get really confusing. Well, not really, because Paul spells it out in verse four. He says, they are Israelites. He's talking about Jewish people, his kinsmen. He is a Jew. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, so he's talking about the Jewish people, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then the end of the chapter, starting in verse 30, the last four verses says, what shall we say then? So he's, so he's made all the, all the complex arguments that confuse us. And then he gets to the end. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles, he's talking about all the non-Jewish people who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. He's describing God's grace to the rest of us, the Gentiles. But watch, watch this in verse 31. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Paul says again and again that they, that the Judaizers, the, the, the Pharisees, the legalists, the moralists who said, I can be good enough. Well, several times in scripture in his epistles, he says, oh yeah, you, you, you want to see what that would have to look like. You're not good enough. Romans 2, if you want to look at it, is one of those places. Then he says, why? In verse 32 of chapter 9, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They didn't pursue it the right way. They knew the law. They, they, listen, listen to those things he's, he's already named at the, at the beginning. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, Christ came, even, he says, who is God over all. So in spite of all that, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They thought they could be compliant with the law on their own, not by faith. And he says they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. He's quoting um, Micah here, if I remember correctly. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So he's talking about Jesus Christ, the stumbling stone. He goes on in chapter 10 to say, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer, he's still talking to the Jewish people, for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, this word knowledge is really interesting. This is not that word that we translate sometimes Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. This is epignosis, which is precise and correct knowledge, thorough knowledge with discernment is the idea. So they've got a zeal for God. They, they believe in law keeping. They're, they're dedicated, but they don't understand truth. They don't have discernment. 
For being ignorance of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then Paul's going to go on to say scandalously, for with the heart, in verse 10 of chapter 10, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, in, in this section, you know, we, we've just seen the, the first few verses of chapter 9, the last few, few verses of chapter 9, plus the first few verses of chapter 10, that Paul is, dire- is addressing the Jewish people. And, and this, this is a little confusing, I'll give you, because he's going he's gonna to do some things with language that is, are, are rather creative. So let's just dive right in. And, and, and we, we know now, you know, we've seen this before, you've known this before, that the Jewish people, there was a huge percentage, a huge portion of the Jewish population that did not accept justification by faith. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They still do. And, and there's a lesson for us to learn here, and we'll, several lessons, and we'll talk about that. So, but, but let's just go to the, these, these complicated sections in in this chapter and see if we can learn really how God deals with us, how how he is complete in and of himself, he's sovereign, and what that means and how that works with our choices. He says in verse 6 of chapter 9, but it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is, now he's using Israel two ways. One, not all who are genetically Jews belong to Israel. He's talking about being in Christ. He's already set that pattern. And then in verse seven, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. That's an Old Testament quote that we'll talk about in a minute. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. That word promise is a gift graciously bestowed, promised good or blessing. The, the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca, that is, that is Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Oh my goodness, here it comes in order that God's purpose of election, oh no, that word, might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. He'd already talked in chapter eight about our being the called. She was told, Rebecca was told, verse 12 of chapter nine, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the first little mystery, not a little one, it's a big one, that we need to unravel a couple of things. Did God hate, does God hate people? Did God hate Esau? Well, it's interesting. There's so much debate over this. I talked about it when we went through Romans. Um, there, there are several sections of scripture. That quote is from Malachi. Jacob, I love you, so I hated. In Malachi 1, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But, it is unimaginable in the Jewish culture that God would bless the younger son, in this case they were twins, but the second to be born over the older son. The notion that God blesses whom he wills 
is, is Paul's point in this text. So, so hold that thought and let's look at that word hate. I, I just, I just want to propose this to you. Look at Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, these are the words of Jesus, and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. I don't think hate means hate there. I think this is preferring one over the other. Let's look at Luke 16, 13. No one can serve, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Is he saying we should hate money? I don't think so. John 12, 25, whoever loses his life and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Is, is, is he saying here, is Jesus saying here in John 12, 25 that, that, that we should hate ourselves? No. These references reveal the meaning of this word ranges from preferring to choosing one over the other. And I know I've got friends who are going to say, no, 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 you're missing the point. He actually hated Esau. Well, I'm, I'm not comfortable engaging in that debate. I, I don't see direct evidence here that this is talking about, in Romans 9, salvation, although I have friends who say it is. But let's look at the next section to see if maybe Paul gives us some insight. Verse 14 of chapter 9 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So there's that word for again. So we could replace it with because he says to Moses. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means because he says to Moses. And then he's got this word so then, which is really similar to therefore in verse 16 of chapter 9. Therefore, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion. That, that idea of exertion is to run, run in a race. But on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Sounds rather arbitrary, but it's not. So Paul covers a lot of ground here. If you look at this, there's a pattern here. If you happen to be somewhere, we can look at a Bible, the word for or because, and then so then or therefore. So it goes, so it goes because, therefore, because, therefore, in this, in this little five verse section Romans 9, 14 through 18. But let's look at what he's quoting here. One of the things he's quoting is when he talks about Pharaoh in verse 17. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God uses whatever he wants to, whatever he wills for his glory. That's the lesson here. He is not constrained by any external influence. And then he, he mentioned his, his mercy a couple of times. He's actually, in, in the original language, it's actually his grace and mercy. And, and Paul appears to be talking about another section in Exodus 33. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the lord and that's the name jehovah or yahweh and i will be gracious to whom i will be gracious and will show mercy on whom i will show mercy just proof that god is 
entirely sufficient on his own, does not need anything external to himself. The word Lord there again is the word Jehovah. That, that word wasn't even pronounced in Hebrew until the 16th century. It's the existing one, the proper name of the one true God, the supreme God. God is radically different from us. God has complete freedom and is not bound by anything external to himself. And then we can we can go on and, and look at this word hardening. He hardens who he wills. And, and really, notwithstanding the fact that God can do as, as he chooses, the biblical pattern for hardening appears to be after his long suffering. And frankly, because of sin. I, I don't believe God is arbitrary in this hardening of heart. You can go back to chapter one of Romans and see how, how he talks about giving them up. Uh, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God is clearly hardening their hearts, but it's because of sin. We see in Exodus 8, 30 to 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So Moses went out. Here's what it says in verse 30 of Exodus 8. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh for his servants and for his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh was sinful. And then in chapter nine of Exodus, verse seven, and Pharaoh sent and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Then in verse 12 of chapter nine, but the Lord Jehovah again, hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord has spoken. So now we can also look at the new Testament acts nine nineteen nine. but when some became stubborn, that's that word for hardening of heart and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, congregation, he withdrew from them. So they appear to have hardened their own hearts. And in Hebrews 4, 7, we see, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's quoting Psalm 95, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. All right, let's take on one more thing, one more difficult subject. You're getting the idea of God's sufficiency, God's being complete in and of himself, but loving us graciously. Our decisions and God's providence work together. Can I fully reconcile that? No, I cannot. There are mysteries there, aren't they? But I believe them to be true. Those principles taught in scripture to be true nonetheless. Watch this one though. Chapter nine of Romans verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make the, of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? Well, I did a little research and I found all the places in scripture, I think, where the potter and clay are mentioned. Isaiah twenty nine sixteen, he, he says, uh, shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker he did not make me or the thing formed save him who formed it. He has no understanding. Jeremiah 18, six talks about the, it says, uh, I cannot do with you as this potter has done declares the Lord behold the clay and is in the potter's hands. 
clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. He's talking to Israel here. God blesses obedience and withdraws blessing due to sin. That's the pattern that we see here. Isaiah 64, 8 and 9 is, a, is one more potter and clay references. All of these references are talking about Israel. This sounds complicated to me. Then he goes on back in Romans 9, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also for the Greeks. So in a sense, because God is timeless, he, he yes, man makes decisions, but he, he allowed people to be born who were going to reject him. And I think that's all that means. But he goes on and he says, in the very place where it was said to them in chapter 9, verse 26, you are not my people. There they will be called the sons of the living God. Another Old Testament reference. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And, and he goes on. So he's quoting from Hosea 2.23 and 1.10, if you want to look it up. But he says, it shall be said to them, it shall be said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So Paul closes this section and really gives us clarity. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law would lead to righteousness, that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Israel tried to work their way to heaven. They, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That little section, and, the, and then, he, then he quotes the Old Testament again in, in verse 33, but that little section, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, tells us everything we need to know. We object in our flesh to God's way of doing things. The Jewish people did not have ears to hear. The majority of them, there was a remnant, a group that was saved, to use modern terminology, a, a group that was justified by faith. But sin hardens hearts. Our self-reliant sin, whether it's immorality or moralism, thinking we're good enough, hardens our hearts, separates us from God, and causes him to, to, to reveal his wrath to us. If we have faith in him, though, if we're justified by faith, if we're saved, if we put our trust in him, then, then he promises to save us, to reconcile us to himself. To, he considers us just like he considered Abraham, he reckons us righteous. He treats us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God is righteous and worthy and glorious. He deserves glory, and we don't. And that's where this topic lands. That's where it's so powerful. God is deserving 
of our praise, not because he's a cosmic vending machine who gives us things. No, no, no. Because he has saved us from our sin. He has first loved us. He's complete in and of himself. He was not obligated. He is not obligated to save anyone, but graciously and mercifully does so. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of glory. He is glorious. Him telling us to glorify him is not arrogant because he's worthy. I can think of all kinds of analogies, but they're imperfect, aren't they? People on earth who receive glory, you might think of a great athlete like Michael Jordan or, or, or somebody else, somebody who you know, wins a bunch of gold medals in the Olympics or, or somebody who's renowned, a billionaire who's renowned from a business standpoint. They get lots of glory or maybe a media person or a, a star, uh, a singer who's won a bunch of Grammys. Yeah, sure, they get some glory. But wow, is, is there a human tendency to become arrogant when, when that human praise starts flowing in or that money starts flowing in? Well, God is the only person, the only entity that is deserving of glory. He alone deserves our praise because of who he is. He is entirely independent of us from a need standpoint. He needs nothing from us, but he is glorious and deserves to be glorified. When we're doing so, Remember how the New Testament summary of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, God, God is, is deserving of that. That is not an arrogant thing for him to require. In fact, it's our happy place, if I can call it that. It's, it's the lane we need to live in. It is what walking by faith is. This gospel that we talk about so much on here, on this podcast, is not just something for salvation. It is how we are to live. So as you praise God in your churches this Sunday, as you, as you think about these, these truths, as you read scripture, remember how apart from us and self-sufficient totally if sufficient God is on his own and yet how close he is to us and how much he loves us in, in, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, that becomes so much more beautiful when we understand this truth. And, and here's some more beauty that was all planned. And we just read old, several old Testament references and there, there are many others, a study of Exodus, although it can be kind of dry is just fascinating to see how he hardened Pharaoh's heart, how, how he treated Israel, how, how, how Israel rebelled. Uh, there, there are several sections that talk about Israel being disobedient and hardening their own hearts because of their sufficiency. They, 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 they understood the oracles of God were entrusted to them and, and they knew them. And you've probably done this before where you memorize facts but you didn't really understand them. And that's what, that's what scripture teaches us about Israel. They, they, they could quote scripture. They didn't understand that it was pointing them to the cross of Jesus Christ, God, the son incarnate. 
They rejected justification by faith and thought that they could be good enough. And before you get too worked up over Israel, say, wow, can you believe those Jewish people were so arrogant? Well, that is precisely what the rest of us do as well. Paul, just in this section of scripture we just read, is teaching us to see these truths through Israel. He's not exempting us from this same challenge. He's just showing us these beautiful truths. So as you think about God's infiniteness and our finiteness, I know it can be frustrating. I know these passages, the potter and the clay and Jacob and Esau can be frustrating to understand, but they're really not. Israel is really ticked off that justification is by faith and that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And there are other lessons for us to learn in that, and we don't have time to go through every one of them. But is, isn't, it, isn't it just a beautiful truth that, that Paul is just explaining, no, God is just to justify the Gentiles by faith. This stumbling stone, Jesus Christ, who they stumbled over, it says at the end of chapter 9, when you read it, just remember he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that thing he started with in in chapter one, verses, I think it's 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So Paul's just kind of coming full circle with his argument. I hope this is helpful. I I hope it didn't sound uh, horribly preachy, but informative. I struggle with these things, these truths. They're, they're beautiful, though, and I hope you see the beauty. Read chapter 9 of Romans, maybe with that involved, uh, in mind, rather, and take a look back into Exodus and Malachi and Hosea at where, where Paul is quoting, and, and you'll see uh, the, the, the fact that he's quoting passages about Israel, and there is beautiful truth for us to learn. So I look forward to being with you again next time. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. Again, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information about our work. Feel free to send along a comment on our contact form there or send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.